right, you know what that sound means. I am Mitch Maley, and this is the Bradenton Times Podcast. We are back after a little bit of time off for the holidays, and there's still not a lot going on with local government, so I've got a special guest with me here today who I've been looking to get in here uh, for quite some time, boxing journalist extraordinaire who spent a uh, moment in one of the biggest historic moments of the last probably half century of uh, boxing, or at least quarter century, Mr. Scoop Malinowski, thanks for joining us, Scoop. Thank you for inviting me, Mitch. You know, it's gr- great because we're sitting here talking before the podcast came on, and it turns out we have so much more in common than I thought. So I was aware of you as a boxing journalist for a long time and didn't realize that you live locally part-time. So you are uh, you live between New Jersey and Holmes Beach. Is that right? Perico Island. Perico Island. Oh, okay. And what part of Jersey? Teaneck. Teaneck, Jersey. Okay, I know what that is as well. So then we find out that your dad grew up in a town right next to mine. <laughs> and we have all kinds of connections from that mom, as well. My mom too. Oh, your mom as and, well. And all four of my grandparents were all from Shenandoah, Pennsylvania. All from Shenandoah. Excellent. Excellent. So a uh, lot of things in common. Now, tell us a little bit uh, about your background. How did you become a boxing journalist? Oh, I always loved boxing as a kid and uh, I loved it so much. I would even as a teenager, make my own boxing programs. We had our own boxing league. When we were about 12, 13, 14 years old, we'd make our own fights amongst kids in school, build our own rings. And we would even uh, start to meet another guy, Mike Pinto, one of my best friends. Uh, we would make uh, boxing programs. And then I expanded there from, I wanted to create my own boxing magazine. So I would cut up my magazines and pictures and make my own magazine. And that's uh, and then after college, I started doing biofile interviews uh, with uh, people in sports, and then I got the chance to do some with some pro boxers in the early '90s. I got them published in daily newspapers, and then that led me to getting to uh, cover world title fights. One of the first big ones was Buddy McGirt against Pernell Whitaker at Madison Square Garden, and been been at it ever since buddy was uh i met him he's a great guy i met him at the uh up in saint pete at the uh was the palladium one of the venues there i did some uh broadcasting work for and he had one of his fighters on the card when he was a trainer and uh was very interesting did his his son had a pretty good career growing did he ever get to the top level buddy mcgurt jr one he was just outside that yeah his son I remember a friend of mine, a boxing trainer, knew him and said he was a really good fighter. Didn't have a punch, though. Yeah, he wasn't, wasn't much of a puncher. He, had, he was good lateral movement. I, remember, I think, actually, that's right. He actually fought up in St. Pete on a card with me as well. That was another time that I met Buddy. And Jay, uh, Jason McGurk? I can't remember his first name. It may have been. It wasn't Buddy Jr.? Maybe James Jr. Yeah, yeah it James. might have been James Jr., right. And Yeah, that's right. That was, that was Buddy's first name. Um now, you've also done a, a number of other books. So I saw you did Facing Monica Sellis and, and a, quite a few other ones related to tennis. So is that like a, is that another sport you've covered as extensively as boxing? Yep. I've done thousands of biofile interviews from, on tennis players and boxers. So, yep. Seems like kind of a antithetical of those two sports. <laughs> well, it's the same thing, actually. Like uh, Tracy Austin said, Tracy Austin, the great tennis champion, she once said on the air, uh, tennis is a fist fight without the fists. 
Ah, well, definitely a one-on-one sport and has the intensity. Um, what were some of the uh, seminal moments in that sport that you were able to, you know, I'm more familiar with your boxing background. Were there, uh, uh, what, were, what were some of the, your best memories in covering tennis? Good question. There's so many. Like boxing, there's so many incredible moments. Djokovic, maybe last year, overcoming the revenge by the establishment and keeping him out of the sport for him declining to take the vaccine. Mm. And that cost him a few Grand Slam titles when he was right in the the chase to overcome Federer and Nadal for the all-time total number of Grand Slams. And he was in his mid-30s, 34, 35, and now he's 36, going to be 37 this year. And last year he won three of the Grand Slams, and he's now two ahead of Nadal. So the establishment kind of tried to end his career and destroy his reputation and end his career. And he's still at the age of 36. He won the three Grand Slams last year. So that was a really special thing to see. And he played maybe the greatest tennis that we've ever seen last year. Uh, other than that moment, uh, Monica Sellis, her career was you know, winning, I think, nine Grand Slams as a teenager. She was on her way to all-time greatness before she was stabbed. Some people think that was uh, not unintentional. Mm. Uh, Agassi Sampras was such a great rivalry. Marcelo Rios, who lives in Sarasota, when he became number one in the world by beating Agassi in the finals of Miami Open, which is one of the most incredible matches ever played. You know, this little guy from Chile became the number one one-ranked player in the world, beating Agassi. Masterpiece of a match. Chilean crowd going crazy in Miami. That was a really, really nice match. It's on YouTube. Uh, Better at his best, Nadal at his best. So many. There's so and many. It, I have to imagine this was a fertile area to do that with the Boletari Academy and then IMG. I, I'd have to imagine it's easier to access tennis players in this region than most of the parts of the country. There's so many down here. Yeah. yeah. Rios lives here. Peter Corda lives here. There's so many players train out of here. The biggest academy in the world is here. Nick Boletari's. For sure. Now, so the moment in history that you're most associated with is for boxing fans, it's, it's infamous. Uh, and that's the, in 2002, Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis finally fought one of the most delayed fights of, of uh, heavyweight boxing history in terms of the anticipation for it. And not the best time in, in terms of their careers and stuff for them. I think we all would have rather it if they would have met several years earlier, but still a massive, massive event at that point. The biggest heavyweight fight uh, purse in, in uh, and gate in quite some time. They had to have the fight in... Uh, Memphis because Tyson was suspended by the Las Vegas commission and there were most other states honor Las Vegas's suspensions. So they couldn't fight in any of the traditional big markets, Atlantic city, New York city, uh, Vegas, etc. And the fight ends up at the pyramid in Memphis. And again, massive, massive event, but it's marred by the press conference in which Mike Tyson attacked. Well, actually because I, I rewatched this this morning and it was a recent conversation uh, between the two of them on a, on, a, on a podcast. And Mike very defensively points out, 
he, that he didn't throw the first punch, which is true, but he did kind of storm storm the the uh, platform where you know they, they they weren't scheduled to have the traditional stare off because they wanted to avoid anything that could you know upend the fight if it if it came out with an injury from somebody punching each other. So the, they had them separated by about you know ten feet, and they were each supposed to stand on these platforms looking at each other. And as soon as Lewis got announced to come out, Tyson just basically threw off the bray he was wearing and started. I think charging is a fair word, Adam. So Lewis obviously thinks, you know, this guy's coming to attack me. So he gets into a, a, a you know, a fight position. And as Tyson goes to reach up, he kind of uh, actually one of the security guards stepped between. Tyson took a swipe at the security guard, a left hook. And then Lewis, you know, threw a right hand that didn't land. And then melee ensued. Tyson ends up biting him on the thigh and then goes on one of the most uh, prolific... <laughs> <laughs> and I would say vulgar tirades in the history of televised anything. And that, it turns out, was provoked by a question that you, as one of the reporters in the press galley, had had asked. So what what remind us, what was the question that you asked Mr. Tyson that led to this epic outburst? Well, it wasn't a question. I, was, I violated the rules. Uh, and they were about 20 feet apart. Lennox Lewis was right at the time. He's not going to stand there waiting to get hit by Tyson. He took act, did what he had to do. And after the brawl, just a catastrophe up there on the stage. Tyson came out behind the curtains, emerged from the melee, and was like grabbing his crotch and acting insane, really. Lennox Lewis's mother was sitting there right in the front row. Wonderful woman. Yeah. Class, class, total class act. And we're all wondering, where the hell is the heavyweight champion of the world? Did he get knocked out cold? Is he? And so I booed. I booed Tyson. And he heard it and looked at me and gave me a glare. Like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that again. And like 30 seconds later, I yelled, put him in a straitjacket. <laughs> so it wasn't a question. Got it. So that, that well, you're tied to history though with something in a sport that you love. Uh, in fact, the reason I reached out to you was to make sure that you had realized that uh, the Joe Rogan experience, biggest podcast in the world, about 10 million people listening, had mentioned that and had mentioned your role that went into a uh, a big part about it. But that was the first time I realized that you were the person that he was directing that tirade at. I had no idea uh, what reporter it was. I just thought he. Heard a question he didn't like. I thought maybe it was a female reporter. I didn't know um, because of the nature of some of his insults. Um, but uh, what's that like? Like that's got to be like I'm thinking as a journalist. Like there, there's got to be a certain kind of feeling to just be tied into history in in that weird way to somebody else's maybe worst public moment. time I was kind of a Lennox supporter really admired Lennox wasn't treated right by the establishment which favored Holyfield Bo Tyson mm -hmm. so it took so long to make that fight actually it was like two or three years Pacquiao Mayweather took six years right because I, I well I remember so obviously legend goes all the way back to they sparred as amateurs when Lennox was I believe because Lennox had two Olympic cycles 84 and 88 and I think he was coming off like the 84 Olympics or junior national or junior world championships. I think he might've won going into the 84 Olympics maybe. And, uh, he ended up, 
coming down to the Catskills to spar with Tyson. And I've heard all different kinds of accounts, for, including from both of them in terms of, but by all accounts, it was pretty competitive. And uh, the story goes, Gus D'Amato made the prediction at that time, one day you two will fight for the heavyweight championship of the world. And Lewis... Uh, came in, so again, came in a little bit late. Tyson was class of 84, was an Olympic alternate. I have watched both of those fights with, uh, who was it, Tillman, uh, who made the team. I thought Tyson got robbed. He should have been on the 84 team. And then you have Lewis coming back out in 88. So Tyson's already established. He's already won a world title by the time Lewis comes onto the scene. And then Lewis quickly rises to the top, but it obviously had that upset against Razor Ruddick that kind of derailed what might have been the first time that they might have crossed paths Tyson goes to prison on those rape charges comes out and now that's a huge moment in boxing because the popularity that was Mike Tyson and and there's you know I was thinking about this today modern sports fans have no idea the phenomenon that was Mike Tyson when he was the undefeated world heavyweight champion before the Douglas lost the the idea that a boxer was at that time like like you had already had uh, probably the only two people maybe close to that were obviously Ali's popularity and probably Sugar Ray Leonard. Leonard, I remember doing the Seven Up commercials and stuff like that, so he was a little bit more mainstream than, than most popular boxers. But Tyson came along and had like a dozen endorsement deals, Diet Pepsi, all kinds of things that that you know you just didn't see in boxing at all. Like you could be a big boxer and have a great contract and get great purses. But like to be mainstreamed as much as he was, was not something that was happening at that time. Video games made about you everything, making unprecedented purses. And then you have him come out in that situation when boxing kind of, like even though it was great, it was a heavyweight golden era with Lewis and Bo and Holofield, there just wasn't the excitement without him in the mix. So he comes out of prison and you know, starts getting a few soft touches to get his his legs back. And then they start sort of, you know, Don King had done a great job of collecting all the belts and putting them on paper champions while Tyson was gone. But Lewis got the number one contender. And they paid Lewis several million dollars in step-aside money uh, so that he could fight Frank Bruno to get the WBC title. And then... Selden, I think it was Selden. Well, the second time... Yeah, yeah. So he fought Bruno, got the WBC title. That's when... Lewis was the number one contender. So they paid him step-aside money so that they can get the WBA title with Selden. So the thinking was, we'll consolidate the two titles, easier fight with Selden, then we can fight Lewis uh, for, for the next fight. Um, but he didn't even retain the WC belt because Selden pulled out and they had to postpone the fight. So WB said, we're not waiting. Uh, and then he ends up just fighting him for the WBA to avoid Lewis. So I always, with Tyson fans... I always, you know, pull, pull that out that whether you want to say it was king or whatever, Lewis was waiting twice and Tyson did not fight him. He gave up the belt not to fight yeah, Lewis that yeah. first time. Yeah, so he gave up the WBC, went after the WBA, and then went to Holyfield, who was considered washed up. So Holyfield obviously had an epic uh, upset over Tyson, you know, to come back and win the title. But that was not considered a good fight. I think the odds opened at like 15-1. to 1. 25. 25 to 1, that's right. That's right, they closed the 15 or 30 too. I think Lou Duva made a bet when it was 30 or 25. 30. Uh, Lou Duva bet on Holyfield. On Holyfield. Uh, I also remember a not yet political Donald Trump claimed he made a lot of money on that, but nobody, none of the casinos uh, 
had, had heard of that action. So I'm not sure if it was true. He said, he said he had bet like a, a million dollars or, or something on it. But, uh, so yeah, that was considered the much easier fight at the time, Evander Holyfield than Lennox Lewis. But when they finally fight, so now also don't forget Holyfield looked mediocre in his fight just before that Tyson fight. Yes. He I fought Bobby Chess. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, uh, Lewis, I think that same night fought Ray Mercer, right? Is that on the same card? Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Card. And he and, struggled. Uh, he struggled with Ray Mercer. He did. Mercer gave him fits with that jab. That was his toughest fight. Yeah, that was a, that was night uh night of the heavyweights or night of the big guys or something, because the, the other fight on that was um uh there was a third fight was Tim Witherspoon against Jorge Luis Gonzalez. Oh, you have a great memory. <laughs> <laughs> three, three big heavyweight fights that night. That, that's what I think it was called. Six big men, three big fights. That was the name of the promotion. I was told by one of I was friends with Lewis's assistant trainer, Harold Knight. And he told me after that fight with Mercer that that was the worst pain that Lennox was in after any of his fights. Really? That was the toughest fight for him. Mercer, like myself, was an Army champion. Uh, he was the last Army heavyweight to make the Olympic team in 1988. Uh, had, of course, that epic chin and that, you know, just sledgehammer of a jab that he would throw. But never a guy for a, that... For a small guy, was only like 5'11". Yeah, yeah, if that... Um, great job. For never came to his full potential though. He was just lazy. Never, never came to he fights did, in the best did, shape. He did for one fight. Tommy Morrison. Yep. Yep. Well, you know what happened there? No. Oh no, that was the Michael Ben fight. You know, he, Michael, the Mike. Yeah, Mercer knocked out Morrison. Morrison, and actually, everybody remembers the highlight reel knockout because he, Mor Morrison gets caught in the ropes, kind of like one arm's almost like tangled. And it is literally one of the most brutal knockouts you'll ever see because it should have been stopped. And he basically had about nine punches that he was able to tee up on a fighter who was completely out on his feet and being held up by the ropes. But what uh, is interesting, I was a big fan of Tommy Morrison's. What's interesting was Morrison was fighting one of his best fights up until that point. He was dominating Mercer uh, pillar to post. And they had fought previously in the 1988 uh, Olympic trials. And Morrison um, lost a close split decision to him in the, in the Olympic trials, so everybody thought, you know, this will be their their chance for a rematch. And Morrison was dominating throughout the fight, but that was was that before or after Mercer got in trouble for remember the hot mic against uh, Jesse Ferguson, ESP. So Jesse Ferguson, Ray Mercer in a title eliminator fight. The winner's going to fight Riddick Bowe. Everybody thinks this is great because they're the 288 Olympians. Mercer was the heavyweight. Bo was the super heavyweight. They're going to get to fight each other in a big title fight. Bo was a champ at the time. And ESPN fight. Ferguson, who's a trial horse, I think he was like 30 and 15 at the time or something, comes to fight that night. Or no, was it Ferguson or Burke Cooper? I think it was Ferguson. Yeah, it was Ferguson. Ferguson. Yeah. And uh, Ferguson is beating uh, Mercer, which everybody's like, what the heck is going on? And the mic from ESPN picks up in a clinch. Mercer get, said, I, th I remember it was 10 grand or 50 grand. I think he said, I'll give you 10 grand if you go down right now. <laughs> and uh, ended up suspended and a bunch of stuff. And then Ferguson went on to, to fight Riddick Bowe. And HBO wasn't super thrilled about having to sell that fight instead of the, uh, the Battle of the Olympic Heavyweights. But so anyway, all that setting up the fact that the kind of the close of that era, I believe, because uh, you had the the two fights between then you know uh, Holofield and Tyson, the infamous ear biting fight being the second one. Then you have the the two unification fights, the underwhelming ones between Lewis and Holofield, and 
Lewis emerges as the king of that era uh, because it goes without saying also that Bo ducked him, you know, through through a belt in the garbage can so he wouldn't have to fight Lennox Lewis. So, or excuse me, yeah, Lewis. So, so Lewis in two thousand two is king of the mountain. He has cleared the division. Yeah, I thought he was actually the king of proved himself as the best when he knocked out Razor Ruddock in ninety two. After Tyson struggled with Razor Ruddock. Lewis just yeah. blitzed him, blitzed him out of there in the second round in London. And Lou Du even said, I wouldn't put uh, Holyfield in there with with Lewis unless he had a machine gun. He actually said that. It was no in one of the Lennox Lewis books. So, and then, so Lennox, you know, he was kind of on the outside for all those years, for 10 years. He couldn't get the big fight with Bo. And he finally did with Holyfield in the late 90s. The one everybody wanted to see was Lewis against Tyson. So, yeah, actually 10 years. So, O2 comes around. But they a, finally fight. Like Larry, myself and a few other reporters, Larry Merchant, thought Lennox was the best. And he was kind of unfairly kept on the outside. You know, because uh, The main moneymakers were Bo, Holyfield, mm-hmm. and Tyson. And the idea, too, a lot of times I think in history he gets unfairly criticized as being like an overly technical stand-up European-style fighter. He had immense power. And what? how much excitement, how much more excitement do you want? Look at the Galata fight. The Galata knockout by Lennox Lewis, that was vicious. That, w- that was a Tyson-level knockout. Look at, um, let's see, who, who were some of the other... Uh, well, the Mercer fight, too, we were talking about Claude Abrams from Boxing News from England after the fight. I was at the fight, too, with the, the garden fight. And he said, you know, Lennox Lewis showed a different aspect of his arsenal. He really got dug down deep and fought down and dirty with Mercer, and he prevailed. And, you know, he had that uh, reputation as being more of a boxer, safety first, kind of a, mm-hmm. using his height and reach advantages. But he showed he can brawl yeah. and, and still win and, and walk through the fire. He, he was really bruised up after that fight. And like I said, uh, Harold Knight, his trainer, told me that he was really hurting after that fight. And then he also had the dominant knockout over Tommy Morrison, which, I mean, he obliterated. That really ended Tommy Morrison as in terms of being taken seriously as a, as a heavyweight contender. And then also the uh, uh, the brutal Franz Botha knockout in England, which well, I think was me, 2001. Let me say about that fight, uh, remember the crowd was, I think it was in Wembley Stadium. Yeah. And the crowd, Lennox. Lewis, and they were chanting his name, the singing for him, and then right after that is when he landed that four punch combination to knock out Botha. Yeah, and he knocked him out. It was like face first knockout too. One of those. Yeah, that, uh, he was the dominant force. He was the class. That's where I kind of thought. I thought that was peak. He had he, and, he, and he had an easy dominant sort of technical victory over David Tua after that. Um, but I thought that night against Botha was just. That was him at his I asked very him top. when he thought, because I did uh, for my book on the fight, Lennox Lewis, Mike Tyson, heavyweight Armageddon. I asked Lennox Lewis, when did, you know, did he think that Tyson was at his best and when Lewis at his best? And he thought, uh, he said the Galata fight, he said there were different fights. The Galata fight, the Rockman rematch. That was another dominant one, yeah. It wasn't just one. It was several spread out over years. I, I, was, I always believed that Lennox Lewis is the greatest of all time. After... After what he accomplished, uh, improved himself by beating all the best, Holyfield and Tyson, I think he would have beaten any man from history. You know, he, he only lost two times, and a little complacent and lazy in both of those fights. 
But he avenged both. And he knocked them both, both out. Of out. The rebound. Yeah. So he beat every man he ever fought. You know, and the, the height and the reach and the power and the intelligence. I think he's the greatest of all time. I think Ali wouldn't have been able to handle him. The uh, the first time he fought Oliver McCall, that was, and I guess that's always what the knock people give is, well, he didn't have a great chin. Uh, but I would say that on the McCall fight, it shouldn't have been stopped. I thought that he it was frozen. I thought that as a champion, he should have, like, I felt by the time the referee got to nine and looked at him, I would have let a champion continue at that point. Well, Don King was involved in yes. the fight. Yes, yes. The WBC title fight, and a lot of people suspected that he controlled the owner of the WBC president, Jose Suleiman. Yeah. and the referee appointed to cover that, to referee that fight was a Mexican, Octa- I think it was Octavio Mayron. So you knew that uh, Don King's fighter was going to get the advantages. But before the fight, I was worried before that fight, I saw the press conference. I remember seeing the press conference highlights on CNN where Oliver McCall was making his statement at the press conference and he looked over at Lennox Lewis and he pointed at him and he like growled, I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to knock you out. He said it over and over. And the camera showed Lewis looking at him as if, wow, he was as if absorbing it. That's how convincing McCall was when he was saying straight to his face, I'm going to knock you out. Not just reading from a script. He was saying it from his heart very emphatically. And he came into that ring that night. Remember, he was crying. Yeah. And I asked him. I did an interview with him a few weeks after that, a biofile interview with McCall after that. And I was why are you crying? He said, I knew what I was about to do. He knew he was going to win that fight before, for whatever reason. You know, he he was an underrated, great heavyweight fighter who didn't get his chance and finally got his chance. And he trained, uh, I think, for months in Mexico with Emmanuel Stewart, who was his trainer that yes, fight. Yeah. And he, you know, like Buster Douglas, he, it all came together. And that Stewart night. said, and Lennox Lewis maybe took him a little lightly. You know, maybe he didn't take him as seriously as he should have. And he got caught with a punch and went down. And I, he was wobbling still, though. Yeah, it's 50-50. He, he could have he let it go on, but... I thought title fight, heavyweight... If you're the heavyweight yeah, champion, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you deserve just a little bit more than that. But he was wobbling, though. Yes, one, for sure. And one more big punch like that can really change a guy. And McCall... I, I did read that Emmanuel Stewart said that the way he uh, kept him out of trouble... Because McCall had serious substance abuse uh, problems. Stewart said it wasn't only the, the... you know Famously, he had problems with crack. But Stewart said he was an alcoholic as well. And uh, he said the only way he found to keep him straight during camp was he would take him to some nightclub and Oliver McCall was a pretty good singer by, by uh, Stewart's account. And he said he would, some nightclub where they'd let him sing and as long as he can go in there and get the attention of singing all night, he can keep him off of drugs. So he wow, did. But that's inc- where did you hear that? That's it was some interview in a uh, magazine somewhere with, uh, with uh, Stewart. And Stewart said though, in training for the fight, he goes, he was a guy that if they ever could have kept him on the straight and narrow and trained consistently, he goes, he would probably be going down as one of the great heavyweights of all time. Cause he said he had a famously had that jaw that he was Tyson's sparring partner for a long time, main chief sparring partner. And somebody told me once it's no accident that you never saw him you know, get a shot at Tyson because he, he was able to uh, absorb Tyson's punching power in a way that used to rock well, Tyson's nobody, confidence. Nobody could hurt him. Yeah. 
he, you know, he uh, fought one of his last fights in his career at the Sarasota Dog Track. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I was down there for it. Um, he was still winning fights like in late forties. Yeah, 40s. he was. Th this was in. This was would have been around oh five. I want to say. Um, so it was, it was way pa well past his prime, and he was it was in great shape, strong. He looked incredibly powerful, even in in his yeah for 40s. sure. And this, he's one of those guys who was a great fighter, but he didn't have the the management and the promotions weren't for him in his favor. There was right. always some Tyson or other fighters that were had the privileges, and McCall was like the secondary guy. And those inner demons, you know, a lot of times people don't want to invest in promoting That's you true, to that yes. level when they don't know that you're going to be able to. Because remember the second Lewis fight, he had a mental breakdown in the ring and just stopped fighting. Yeah, he didn't want to be there. Now, that was a, that was like one of the toughest things to watch, I would say, in my in my time you know, as a fan of boxing. was uh, He looked in shape, but he didn't want to fight. I don't know. That was a weird one. That was yeah. One of the weirdest ones. Maybe. That that detracted from Lennox Lewis that uh, that that fight. Yeah, and that was another thing. That was a, I was a huge Lennox Lewis fan, and I always had so much respect for the way he carried himself, the way he carried the the, the title, and the the onus that you felt he had in terms of like representing it among young fans and, and representing the sport well. And that was just like another incident where people started calling him a paper champion because you won in that fashion, you know, against the guy. But maybe it was, was like maybe it was intentional by King to because that embarrassed Lewis's image to go through something like that. Yeah, and the Ak and Wandy fight. That's uh, those things can happen in boxing. Yeah, the Ak and Wandy fight, of course, where it was a disqualification for holding, arguably one of the worst heavyweight fights of all time. I'd, I'd say the only one worse than that. Is uh, so they're putting Lennox Lewis through all these circus fights that are making him look bad, and that, that diminishes his value for and, sure. And the demand to see him in the big fight against Holyfield and Tyson, and he would never sign with King, which is always. And King was one of those guys that if you if you're uh, against me, I'm not happy just letting you do your own thing. I need to try to keep you down as well. So let's talk a little bit about how uh, the sport has changed. And I'm well, very. Wait, let me add. I, uh, even though me and Tyson had that kind of feud that day, we've actually uh, spent time together, and uh, I've done interviews with him after that. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, tell us yeah, how that yeah. went. Uh, the first time was that uh, we had a mutual friend, Leroy Neiman, the artist. He, there was a memorial for him after he passed away in New York City, and I was surprised Tyson was there too. I, I knew I was friends with Leroy Neiman for two decades. Met him in early '90s. And, you know, went to his studio dozens, hundreds of times. Watched many fights on pay-per-view up there in his apartment. Uh, countless interviews with him. Uh, so we were close friends. And Tyson was uh, good friends with Leroy Neiman, too. I think Leroy went to visit him in jail in Indianapolis. They had a long history together. Tyson would visit him in his studio also. So Tyson was, came to pay respect at the memorial. And then after the memorial, which was in New York City, Frank Campbell, funeral home. Uh, we all went to another mutual friend, uh, Mario Costa, at the ringside uh, barn lounge in Jersey City, New Jersey. That's one of Tyson's best friends, one of my closest friends, too. And whenever Tyson's in New York area, he always goes and visits Mario. He actually has his pigeons in the back uh, in a coop, hundreds of pigeons uh, in Jersey City. So we all went there to eat after, and uh, I was talking boxing and tennis with Mike, and he loves loves tennis uh, even more than he loves boxing now. Really? <laughs> yeah. At the, at the Olympics, Brazil, he was more interested in watching the tennis than the amateur boxing. Uh, his one of his daughters is a 
very serious uh, junior player. She played the Eddie Her last year, got uh, one, two rounds, a, interna- a huge international tournament. And yeah, we had a conversation and even a little argument about who the greatest uh, tennis players of all time. And I was saying that I think it's Serena Williams. I think she would beat anybody from history, the big serve and too strong, too explosive. And he disagreed with that, and he thought it was Martina Navratilova. Really? Because of her longevity in the sport. Ah. She was champion and on top for so long when Serena had ups and downs and was not so as dominant as Navratilova. And he actually was so convincing, I actually, yeah, I, I think he, he he changed my mind. Yeah. So we talked talk some boxing and tennis and yeah, so we're we're on, uh, you know, we're kind of friendly. You know, we don't have contact, but uh, what happened in two thousand two? So did, did, did he past. recognize you from that, or did you bring that up, or no? We, no, 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 we, no. I'm sure he does. He's a very sharp, eagle-eyed guy. You know, I wear my fedora with the press card in there, so I'm kind of. Yeah, it'd be hard to right, right. Uh, yeah, and we have mutual friends who talk, and uh, yeah, he, and Mario is. Uh, and several people have told me Mike Tyson is not one to hold a grudge. Hold a grudge, yeah. yeah. Well, he, he recently even came out and uh, spoke more about his addiction issues and said that one of the things that he was not as honest about was how bad his cocaine usage was. And I believe he even talked about that period with the press conference of some of the... He was talking about some of his you know less finer moments and which ones of them involved, you know, his cocaine use. And I believe he talked about that press conference with, with being one of them that he was heavily coked up on it. Mm, wow. Well, co- cocaine has been determined. I read an article many years ago in a tennis magazine. Cocaine has been determined by doctors to be a performance enhancing drug. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there used to be, in fact, there used to be a, there was a boxer years ago. I'm trying to think of the documentary. Uh, I think it was, think it might have been that f- fighter that was involved in the uh remember the famous fight where panama lewis got suspended because of the it's a tie-in to, it, not the guy that luis resto and billy collins yes so maybe it was i think it was billy collins um i'm not 100 percent sure on this but i'm pretty sure it was billy collins that said his trainer used to give him cocaine in a inhaler so he would say he had asthma and would have a ha- asthma inhaler and give him cocaine during the fight to keep him keep him moving. So yeah, well, look at some of the greatest champions uh, have had severe cocaine problems. Aaron Pryor, yeah, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, Pernell Whitaker, yep, and those are just the documented ones. Uh, Michael Nunn, another great fighter. So there may be there may be a few more. I think the correlation there is it's it's a drug it's a euphoric drug that creates this feeling of invincibility and and I think that for someone who makes a career in a sport that is immensely intense it comes down to a really moments after months and months of training you're fighting one-on-one often in front of 20,000 people let alone everybody that's watching on television I think it's the sort of rush that is difficult to replicate in real life. And I think that's why you see things like athletes, boxers, and football players in particular. Tennis players also. Tennis players. Many. Not only the cocaine, but gambling as well. 
Look at all the, uh, you know, Lawrence Taylor, Michael Jordan, all of the athletes that famously had gambling problems where it's like, well, you know, you're a multimillionaire. What, what's the Russian winning? It's not the Russian winning. It's the Russian not losing, you know, taking this giant risk in which you may, something awful might happen. And that's similar to the Russia boxing. I remember, I remember of all the sports I played, Boxing was by far the, the one in which like the, the lead up to it was the most difficult. I mean, the you know, before a football game, even in college, it was it was never a big deal. You might get a little bit of butterflies or something that was that whole day of a boxing match was pins and needles. It was just because again, you're going out in front of a large crowd, just you and one other person, and they're basically trying to do the most emasculating thing that you could do, which is render you unconscious with a single blow. Uh, that's always, it was never the fear of getting hurt. It was never the fear of the consequences or repercussions career-wise. It was just always the, do not let me, do not allow me to suffer the, the indignity of losing in front of all these people. And that was, that was just a roller coaster. And it also made the emotional, outlet of winning way higher than I'd ever experienced in any other sport. Cause you're, you're going through that overcoming it and you come out the other side. So I can, I can certainly imagine particularly for athletes who get to the highest level doing that possible, that that's gotta be a, a difficult, more, more difficult than most athletes in terms of reassimilating back into normal life where, you know, 20,000 people don't cheer <laughs> when you walk into a room. I, let me add to what you're saying about the feeling before a fight. It's not just the day of the fight. I remember when I when I was a kid, I told you about the boxing mm -hmm. league we used to have when we were teenagers. I My first fight, I agreed to fight this kid in my friend's living room. <laughs> and I the whole week, I remember I, I was worried and so scared about what could happen. Could I get right. hurt? Knock a tooth out. Or, and you know, 15, 20 kids watching. Uh, I debated whether to fake out. Oh, I can't. I got to do something. You know, one of the, one of the kids faked. Oh, my mom is making me paint my bedroom. I can't box. Right. So they faked out. He couldn't take it. And the stress was. And I didn't fake out though. I didn't want, even though I wasn't confident in my ability to fight, but I wanted. I had to do it, and I ended up uh, winning the fight. The kid, the other kid, his name is Bob. Bob Pack. <laughs> He quit after the fourth round. And I remember, I'll never forget the feeling after that. Even though I didn't win decide, he just quit. I, it was over. I was so relieved from the stress of right, the, box, right. the boxing match of what was really a week of suffering. Right after I won the fight, I remember running down the steps, running into my friend's bathroom and crying. I broke down. I was so relieved to get it over with and to have passed a kind of a test kind of a thing. So to imagine what these pro fighters go through on the level a million times more is it's impossible to even imagine. And the uh, cocaine, you didn't never try it, did you? No. I tried it once, experiment. One of my friends back in the uh, early 20s was doing it. And uh, I tried it one time in my life, only one time. And the sensation is that it's a... Uh, it's like a, it like alivens your, uh, alerts your senses. It makes you sharper, more acute, very sociable. You want to talk and very, 
makes you more extroverted and but I can see how it makes your uh, ability to box and fight physical uh, feats better. The uh, probably the best depiction of that I've ever seen. Um, the boxer, the Mickey Ward biopic, where uh, I forget the the British actor that plays Mickey Ward's brother that it becomes his trainer and shows him the throes of crack addiction uh, was I thought a, a, a stark reminder. Let me ask you that question real quick. Favorite boxing movies? Rocky. Rocky. And the champion. The champion. The Which one's that? Errol Flynn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Old, black and white. Black and white as James J. Corbett against John L. Sullivan. Okay. And the, just a great movie. Errol Flynn is a great actor. Mm -hmm. Robin Hood and all that. Yeah. But the the great scene of that one, you saw that, right? I don't know that I did. That might be one of the few that I have. You got to see that one. The best scene in that movie is when Corbett, played by Errol Flynn, wins the title from Sullivan. And then after the fight, they have a, an exchange. And that's one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in boxing. I liked... Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You have to go see it. I liked... Um, the, class, I- the class of the great boxers is really shown there. I, I really enjoyed uh, The Heart of They Fall. I thought that was a great one. Um, which Jackie Gleason playing the manager... Uh, I loved the Rocky Graziano biopic. Somebody up there loves me. Um, I really enjoyed the Great White Hope, which was the James Earl Jones, and it was supposed to be Jack Johnson. They didn't use the name, but uh, basically a biopic of Jack Johnson. I think that might have been the best movie in terms of the the famous boxing ones. Obviously, I was a huge, huge Rocky fan growing up, uh, especially growing up in Pennsylvania. Um, having seen the steps, ran up the steps, you know, seen the statue. Uh, the I think music, the music, the music for sure. Yes, for sure. You know, I, I, it's only that I, I've never even seen. What's the one on Jake Love? The Raging. I've never. I oh, Raging Bull. I can't even. I can't. There's so many boxing movies I can't even watch. I've yeah. watched for like a minute, and I just don't. I can't get into it. But Rocky, I'll watch it every time. The music. That it's like the greatest sports movie of all time. The music, all the different music in there. Uh, the story, of course, you know, and then when Rocky goes down mm-hmm. uh, and he's about to be knocked out and uh, Creed, uh, give, and he gets up and he's beaten up, he's dead, and Creed looks like, how the F, how the F did he get up? That's the way they film that scene is just so good. Yeah, for sure. I get goosebumps every time watching that, every time. Where do you think the sport goes at this point? Because uh, I'm concerned with the idea, one, let me ask you this, as a, as a fan, and as a journalist, do you, I know I wrestle a little bit with the idea that now that we know everything we know about CTE, that, you know, we used to kind of have the thinking, even when I was fighting in the late 90s and early 2000s, the thought process basically was, it's not good for you, but the thought process was mostly, as long as you don't stick around too long. Everybody kind of always attributed, you know, whether it was Ali or any of the other fighters that, you know, got punchy, had problems afterwards. They used to always say, oh, they hung around too long. It was those last two fights. They took too many punches near the end. Now we have a really good idea that of what happens every time you get hit. And now we know that every time you get hit in the head, it does a little bit of irreversible damage. And there's really no way to come through a career without some degree of CTE. 
and because nobody's whose brain they examine in football and boxing doesn't have it so far and in postmortems. So, and now we're starting to probably better understand when we talk about the, because one of the things that goes part and parcel with CTE is an increase in risk-taking behavior. So when we see the fighters that we used to kind of just think maybe the drugs and the alcohol and the public antics were more like, hey, I'm at a spotlight and I'm not dealing with it. Now, when I look at that, when I look at a guy like Tommy Morrison, for example, who you know died of HIV, went off his meds at a time when you know it was essentially all but curable, it was a completely manageable crisis. But when you look at the erratic behavior that was happening, I look at it and say, probably CTE, almost definitely CTE. So what are your feelings on now as you watch boxing um, of kind of having that when you watch a great fight and they're they're really trading of knowing that, yeah, that, that's probably damaging that person. Does that give you any struggle? You know, I never, I never really did like those great fights like that where they both kill each other. War mm-hmm. Gotti. I always prefer to... I remember, a masterpiece performance. Yeah, I, I don't like to see two guys get be- beaten the hell out of each other like that. Um, uh, the sport is going to, as long as they make the fights that the public wants to see, and lets them be real fights instead of uh, corrupting and playing soft and making sure the guy who makes more money right. for the long-term wins. But as long as they, Tyson Fury fights Usyk and then the winner fights Joshua again, and Canelo fights uh, Benavides and hopefully Crawford. That's an interesting fight. As long as they make the fights that the public wants to see. But there's, there's this feeling that the, the money fighters just will not be allowed to lose. And But for the health, um, you know, some some of these guys are unbelievable. Jake LaMotta. I got to interview Jake LaMotta when he's in his 90s. And he was still very sharp. I saw him do a comedy show in New York City, a one-man I remember show. they did that. Yeah, I haven't seen it. And he was in, I think he was in his 90s then. I fought his... He, uh, he, he performed on stage. It was during the U.S. Open. I remember I was covering the U.S. Open, and then I went and covered that. for. I did a two-page feature story for Boxing News in England about his one-man show. And he, he almost got... He, I almost got into a little fight with him. <laughs> I, uh, it was unbelievable. I was... I think I was... Make it said some more. His wife was like in her 40s or 50s mm-hmm. and using his 90s, and she was there. And I was just making small talk conversation to her. And I, he was, uh, what the, he was, he was, and somebody had to tell me that, yeah, he was, got, uh, got, got angry at me. Thought you were trying to make time with his no, lady. No, no, but I was just, <laughs> it was just normal, it was, right, I, sure. Yeah, I didn't, I, but I saw the core of my eye that he was pissed, that he was angry. So I was uh, so that shows some fighters are super strong, and you know he's one of the considered one of the toughest of all time. And all those two hundred fifty fights, or how many he had, and taking ability to take the shot, and he was had his mental and physical ability still in his nineties. So you know a lot of the fighters maybe don't train hard enough, or they don't take care of their body, and maybe that's their own fault. Or but it's a dangerous, high risk sport. And but you see a future for no, nobody forces them to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the landscape changing so much. Some of these biggest fights now are making hundreds of million dollars for each. Uh, there's still a great demand to see these fights. So let's let's look at the the business model and the thing that you talked about because too often the the right fights don't get made. The one thing I was 
always thought could have could have cured that was when UFC came around and Dana White established that company. The model that he had he, was he didn't establish it. it was, no, he he bought it and then established it as so so it was he was the figurehead, right? Well, it was basically bankrupt by the people who started it. Fertitta? Yes. He bought it and then was the one that took it to, you know, a billion dollar company. But the the model that he created that I thought was far superior to boxing was boxing you have the problems with the sanctioning bodies. They're all corrupt. They exist. They they are founded in corrupt countries so that they can operate however they want. We've seen the stories a million times. Well, and even the IBF, you know, you remember the big scandal in the 90s with them. Uh, they was in Jersey. Yeah, and that was an American-based one. So I, I uh, correcting myself that it's not just in third world countries like like some of the other ones, but the which are based in Venezuela, Venezuela. Mexico. Yeah. So you had three belts. Now they're calling it the four belt era, um, where you have four world championship belts. Which right off the bat doesn't make sense to anyone who hasn't followed boxing the whole time. They're like, I don't understand who's the who's. Well, you're the heavyweight champion of the world, but he's the other heavyweight champion of the world. What what does that mean? The so you have that problem, but what the UFC did effectively was the promotion owned the title and then would get the you know TV contract. So I always thought that if HBO, who had been now, now I don't think either of us would have thought that we'd be sitting here in 2020s with no HBO boxing ever again, but the if, when HBO had all the money and was dominating the sport in the early aughts, I felt like if they would have done the same thing, because they were signing fighters to exclusive deals and they were HBO fighters, that's the only place they fought on, very similar to UFC, I felt that if they would have just made a world title or used the ring world title or whatever and said, on HBO, this is the only thing that will ever be mentioned as a championship fight. These are This is the only title that you will fight for. If you want to come to the biggest platform where the most money is for boxing, like what the UFC is for MMA, you will sign an exclusive contract here and you'll kind of fight in this league. And everything else will be something less than that the way it is in MMA, Showtime, ESPN, whatever the case was. Uh, is that the real problem with boxing is in that you have promoters who essentially are managers in, in, in the real sense of it. They're taking an interest in one fighter that they want to profit a lot of money out of and they're planning out a long-term arc for that guy to, to be marketable. Um, but they only own one side of the occasion uh, of the equation traditionally. And then there's competitive promoters who own other top people. And as you said, the incentive is never to let their guy get beat. So if you look at it and say, well, yeah, this one super fight will make X amount of dollars, but if we put on three mediocre fights, it'll make the same, and there's almost no chance he's going to lose in the three mediocre, but the last thing I want is I'm managing Mike Tyson, he loses to Lennox Lewis. Now Lennox is undisputed champion, and I've got no leverage you know, going forward. So do you see any kind of answers that could improve the way that the whole idea of if the right fights get made uh it's up to the fans if the fans stop supporting the setup fights they're gonna they have to force they have to like tyson that the only reason they made the tyson fight against lennox lewis was because tyson's previous fights before lewis started making smaller numbers and it was time to sacrifice him 
And Tyson needed the money. He was, even though he made $30 million, over $30 million for the Lewis fight, he was still in debt after that fight. Yeah. I think $50 million or something. And the only reason the Pacquiao Mayweather fight finally happened after six years was because Mayweather's numbers on the Showtime guaranteed $150 million contract for six fights were starting to do disappointing numbers. And the head of CBS Showtime, Les Moonves, actually forced Mayweather to do the fight. Oh, really? I didn't know He intended to duck Pacquiao forever. That was the plan. But they pretended in the media that they're, you know, they postured like they want the fight. They're trying to make the fight. He has to take the shot. He has to beat this guy, that guy. That was all BS. He was pretending it. And fake negotiations, uh, whether it fell apart. No, he, Mayweather intended to duck Pacquiao forever and just keep fighting his setup fights. But that's the fight got forced and... Fans in the media have the power to force those fights to happen by rejecting the fights they don't really want to see. Don't pay for it. And that, but HBO, yeah, HBO did have the power at that time. And, but you know, the first cracks were Roy Jones, the exclusive contract. But then Roy Jones, all of his opponents he picked were easy opponents. Yeah, part timers. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to lose. He didn't want to take the chance of uh, losing to Nigel Ben or. Roshigiani or the German guy, Mikhail Shevsky. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Mayweather was the same thing. Uh, so, so HBO, yeah, it was never going to never gonna work because there's always outsider great fighters that the, they build them, they get built up and they're exciting. The fans want to see them. So it's all up to the fans and the media. Just what do you think of the Saudi influence right now? That's another thing that's changing the sport drastically. One of them being there. So Saudi Arabia is attempting in many ways to sort of rebrand themselves in, in the global community and they're, you know, from their involvement with soccer and now with boxing, they're attempting to host a lot of marquee sports events in the country and they're throwing because of that. So because it's kind of a, it's a loss leader for them in the sense that they're, they're buying advertising for their country more than they're trying to have a profitable uh, enterprise. As a result, they're, overpaying significantly for boxing matches. And one example that I heard recently was the whole idea of a AJ um, Fury fight was determined undoable until it could fit into the Saudi schedule because even doing a traditional, I mean, that's a fight that had been, desired a long time and it would be enormous in Europe and UK particular and you would be able to sell out Wembley Stadium you would have pretty significant pay-per-view numbers and the report on it was that it still wouldn't be half as much as the fight's worth in Saudi Arabia right now so does having that sort of flood money I mean in one case it can help we just saw a couple you know fights happen there recently uh, Tyson Fury's most recent one, uh, Anthony Joshua's most recent one. Um, but at the same time, does throwing that much money on it mean we won't see other fights get made if they're not made there on that calendar because of the loss of potential? That's a, I think the Saudi Arabia is very good for the sport because that big show they just had on December 23rd, mm-hmm. uh, it was real boxing. There was no... Everybody thought Wilder was going to win that fight against Parker, but he lost badly. So and, and it was a great, the scoring was accurate. 
Yeah, there was no corruption. There was no, I don't think there was any corruption on the whole show. So it was it was a theater, as Larry Merchant used to say, the theater of the unexpected, mm-hmm. the real boxing, and not like so many of these fights we see now where everybody who wins is who is expected to win. Right. Um, so does, does Saudi Arabia potentially become that solution like the UFC? If, if, if the money over there becomes the, hey, you have to come here, but you have to fight the fight that we say you got to fight because they're looking to make marquee fights. They're not looking to build up the brand of a foreign fighter. They have the power to, to make the big fights happen. Now, but better Bayev against Bivol is supposedly going to happen next. If, if, uh, In Saudi? Yeah. Oh, okay. Better Bayev wins his next fight. That's another unbelievable battle. The unbeatens at one mm-hmm. light heavyweight. Uh, what other fights? Canelo, Benavides. That's the big fight we want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but maybe, yeah, Saudi Arabia maybe could save boxing, actually. Maybe that could turn into the next mecca of boxing where all the big fights are going to be. And if that's the way it goes, then that's the evolution. That's interesting. Where do you, let me ask you about Canelo. Um, where at this point in your career do you put him among the all-time greats? Because I, I've really changed. I've, I've gone more and more pro Canelo as it's gone on. Like, like I, I, was, I was impressed with him early, but I think his, he's shown me more development later in a career than I've seen from most fighters. I think he's protected. I think he's a huge moneymaker that they will not let lose. I remember they had the lawsuit with with De La Hoya. Canelo had the lawsuit with his former managers before De La Hoya. Mm-hmm. And I remember it came out in the lawsuit. They asked how much value that Canelo was going to be for the next 10 years. And De La Hoya said that Canelo w- was going to make 300 to $400 million for himself and also 300 to $400 million for Oscar De La Hoya. Now, when a fighter can make that much money, they're never going to let him lose. Right, right. So I don't know how good Canelo really is. And the Golovkin fights, especially, well, all of them really, they all look like fights that Golovkin, you know, he got avoided for three years until he was in his mid to late 30s. 30s, and, yeah. You know, he took the, he needed, he, he finally got the big payday instead of making one, two million a fight. Now he made 20 million for over 20 million for all three fights. And after 10 years ago, when he first sparred Canelo, when he first went to Los Angeles, Golovkin first went to Los Angeles, he destroyed Canelo in sparring. Then he had to wait three, four, four, five years to finally get the Canelo fight. And he didn't really try to hurt him. And, even the third fight, you could see pulling punches and missing punches and one of it. I think Golovkin was the best fighter of that era. And, but really? We, but we never saw his greatest fights, you know, because none of the big-name guys wanted to fight him. You know, the Eastern European from Kazakhstan, uh, that's that's not the long-term moneymaker. Right. You know, Mayweather had the chance to fight him. Mayweather said, I could beat anybody from 154 on down. Well, the next week, Golovkin said, hey, I'll, I'll come down to 154 to fight you. And Mayweather never said another word about it. Canelo, he should have fought Canelo five years earlier. And if it was a real fight, I think he would have done the same thing to him that he did in sparring. Destroyed him in sparring. I, I, I know a witness who saw it. Just a total different class level. Mm-hmm. Uh, other fighters, Andre Ward. Andre Ward ducked him too, though. Andre Ward lies and says that he was, that Golovkin didn't want to fight him. But I got the inside information on that too. It was Ward who didn't want to fight Golovkin. But they protect the American fighter Ward, they got to protect his image and his value. Mm-hmm. Golovkin has too much class to go public and say anything. You know, he, he, 
he's retired now. Well, we don't even know he's retired. He just vanished. He just took the last payday from the Canelo third fight and gave up the two of his titles, and nobody knows. He's just va- kind of making a statement maybe, just leaving the sport and not saying anything. A lot of class there. Yeah, I think Golovkin is maybe one of the maybe the greatest middleweight of all time. Shifting a, per, a perfect fighter. Look at that guy's technique. Perfect. His uh power. The, the deep, thing he did to take a punch. The thing he did that impressed me the most was he was a master at throwing punches from unconventional angles and at unconventional targets. He would punch your shoulder. He would punch up here on the head. He would look for all legal punches, but he would look in places that people aren't traditionally defending against. You're always defending against your body, your chin, you know, your your uh, nose, and he would come at you from some place where it would get right behind your glove. It would, so that that accuracy in an unconventional targeting, uh, to me, was just, it was phenomenal. And it, it made it like, I used to watch him and try to imagine how you solve that problem. And it was like, ooh, that would be a tough one. That'd be a tough one no matter how much skill you have. That's, that, that's a tough, uh, that's a heavy lift for anybody, right? One of the closest to perfection fighters I think I've ever seen. Sugar Ray Leonard close to also until the end. Uh, Golovkin with that ring entrance to that, whatever that music was, incredible ring entrance he would make. And he would fight uh, he would fight the awkward and the tough guys that they weren't names, but he would fight them all, the dangerous guys. Right, the guys right. That, we wanted to fight and he would that weren't big draws yeah, yeah. And, and were fights that would have been real easy to avoid because the public wasn't clamoring for him. And because nobody else, the bigger names wouldn't fight him. Right. So had, and, he, and, he beat, and he made them, he beat them all the same way, all these different styles. It was similar to Bernard Hopkins. You know, Bernard Hopkins was another guy who was anti-establishment, and he had all the titles. Somehow he got all the titles, and then they would put these mandatories for him to fight these guys that – awkward the guys are going to make him look bad but he would beat all them too and that's how fighters become truly great by fighting the, all the tough hard fights mm-hmm. and overcoming all these different styles instead of feeding on a bunch of hired patsies that they throw in there to make them look good to build up the record and build up the value hop you know hopkins i think is one of the greatest fighters of all time a similar Maybe story the greatest fighter of all time he won he was at world class high world class level to beyond age 50 yeah yeah that's, yeah, you can make a very good Bernard argument Bernard from his greatest fight fighter ever. All those awkward, weird styles and dangerous mm-hmm. guys, and and because the establishment was trying to knock him off for all, all those years, sanctioning bodies would put him in mm-hmm. you know, Eccles and Darren Allen, and all these awkward, all these Trinidad, similar uh, Joppy narrative for a local fighter um, out of St. Pete. Uh, God, his name just slipped Winky my head. Winky Wright. Winky Wright, yeah. Ronald Winky Wright, 154-pound uh, world champion who, and then middleweight world champion, who went to Europe because awkward southpaw, strong jab, nobody would fight him over here, and went to Europe and would where would say, I, I most times you need a knockout to get a draw, and put together a career by either losing decisions that, that everybody saw he clearly won, or winning in the most unhospitable environments, and then finally they couldn't ignore him anymore, and he got a shot down in the United States and and made the most of it. But that's that was another guy where his, his greatest fight was a twelve zero shutout against that legend from Puerto Rico. You remember that Trinidad? Yeah, he, he utterly dominant him. Yep, one twenty one oh eight. Yep, and was it was a, a underdog fighter, in it. A good, yeah, yeah, it was what a masterpiece that was. Yeah, he was a great fighter. 
an underdog who went all the way up to light heavyweight. And, he, and he, I think they fought at middleweight or 154, and he shut him out. What do you think? So shifting gears on a, on a hard turn here. What do you think of the phenomenon that is YouTube boxing and the idea that these non-boxers are making like real pay-per-view money from these exhibition matches on, on, on pay-per-view? I don't watch it at all. I, I don't watch it, but what do you think of the phenomenon? Do you think it brings it more proved, people to it boxing? Proves, it proves the value of boxing. Okay. The public wants to see good fights, and the establishment on bo boxing is not delivering. Mm -hmm. So these YouTube guys are making their own fights, and they're making huge. I think it it speaks to the popularity and value of the sport of professional boxing. What do you think of the idea that there's also a narrative and a storyline that's harder to follow in sports? I would say today's boxing media landscape. Whereas one of the things that I thought H I thought HBO was the, was the, was the high watermark for boxing production ever. And one of the things I really appreciated as a fan was they would do all those like vignettes before the fights where you would see, you know, eventually they took it into like a reality show, the 24 seven that would lead up to the big fights. But in the, even in the old days, they would give you the story. You, they, they'd go to the guy's hometown. You'd see his gym. They'd talk to his parents. They, they, you'd see the local pizza shop with his, with his thing up, with his uh, you know, picture on the wall, and the interview of what the fight means to him, how he got there. And you always felt a little bit more invested, I, I felt. And then you had this massive boxing ecosphere where you had Tuesday night fights on USA Network. You had... Uh, ESPN's Friday Night Fights starting after that. You had, you know, Fox. You had all these minor leagues, if you will, that all eventually led to the HBO and Showtime and, and their pay-per-views. And you got this sense of, this is someone who I feel like I know and I'm rooting for. And part of me almost thinks that's why the internet boxing is getting the, the buys that regular boxing away from those big fights is not because there's no longer, and there was also Ring Magazine in every store you went in that sold magazines, you can guarantee that you'd see at least one boxing magazine in, in Ring, sometimes two or three other ones. So there are all these ways for the fans to kind of connect and become invested. And I don't see that as much. So I think that might be outside of those biggest, and that might be why Floyd and uh, even now Manny's talking about it, they can make more coming back and fighting exhibitions than the top fighters often can that would would put on better fights and be more deserving of it let's say like uh uh what's his name who just won the big fight uh bud um crawford bud crawford uh bud crawford is a phenomenal fighter in my opinion and another one who didn't get you know he couldn't get that fight for the longest time because of the pbc thing but someone like bud crawford i don't think enough potential fans know anything about him or feel invested in that storyline. And I think that sort of makes bo boxing suffer. And that's why I think, I, I think if Manny Pacquiao came back and fought an exhibition, uh, who are they talking about him fighting that Irish MMA guy? Uh, uh, McGregor. Conor McGregor. And that would probably do way bigger numbers than, than anything that Bud Crawford could do. Do you think that might be part of it, that we don't have those means to, to kind of know fighters the way that us as journalists used to help the, the fans navigate? That's a really good 
good point about the HBO doing those. Yeah, no, but, but the fighters also have so, social media. They show a lot of themselves on there. But HBO did those little two, three-minute vignettes on the fighters. But H- ABC and Howard Cosell did them also. Yeah, yeah. Why well, sports was a big part of boxing back then. Those were great before the fight, too. Remember, we were seeing Marvin Hagler at his house and Matthew Franklin at his mm-hmm. house and Ernie Shavers. Yeah, the boxing showtime, they don't do that anymore. You don't really get familiar with the fighter. Just you see the interviews and the scripted answers. Yeah, the, boxing needs to show the personalities of the boxers better, like you said. Ring Magazine would always have like an in-depth interview in every edition that you'd get to learn more about them. Yep, yep. Boxing, yeah, boxing is not promoting the fighters as well as they used to in the past. Yeah, and I just don't know that there's a there's a means to do it well. Like you said, social media, but again, we look at other athletes in social media, you have a league already, so it's more supplementing all of this intense media that you get from, and look at how much more time they get on like, you know, ESPN and other sports platforms in terms of the uh, the coverage, you know, aside from, hey, a big fight's coming up or a big fight just happened, you don't get the sort of like day-to-day narrative that you do with NFL and NBA. So when those guys are doing social media, it's like they're already a character from another brand that, that then somebody's found them somewhere else and they can go get more there. I think there's no way to for, for the fans, unless you're a really hardcore boxing fan, to find the fighter in the first place. You know what I mean? You don't have that league and the show and all that media and sports attention building these characters the way they do in other sports. Um, and I just, I wonder whether or not they'll, and the UFC again has that because UFC has one promotion. They control everything that comes out of it, everything that gets shown on every broadcast. And that's the entirety really of the top tier of their sport where boxing being so bifurcated among all these different, you know, uh, uh, streaming platforms, television networks, and um, promotional bodies, there doesn't seem to be this kind of one place where a narrative emerges like there does in other sports. And I wonder whether that can be overcome in today's 24-hour media, streaming, and internet, social media-driven world. Another big problem with boxing is there. there's only really one great fighter that's American right now, Terrence Crawford. Yeah, yeah, you, among the truly great fighters, you're right. All the other ones are kind of manufactured. Right. Or they come from other countries, and they come yeah, from other countries. Americans. Americans are all manufactured. Well, the, the worst best, thing that... The best fighters are from other countries. The worst thing that happened, to, in my opinion, to boxing was NFL and NBA. Uh, because the truth is that particularly, like, particularly upper weight class boxing, so particularly heavyweights, uh, light heavyweights, maybe cruiserweights, where... There's just, I remember somebody putting it to me once where they said, listen, when Muhammad Ali was a champ, the money Ali was making, the fame that he had, everything it conferred made people that were potential heavyweight boxing contenders, it directed them toward that sport because of those opportunities. But then within a generation, the money at the NFL and the NBA jump past that and it conferred guarantees. So now all of a sudden you're coming and looking at it as an athlete, as an American athlete and saying, I can go to a league where just getting drafted might set me up with walkaway money. 
just getting my first contract will mean I'll never have to work like a normal person again. And most of it will be guaranteed no matter what happens to me. Otherwise, I go to boxing, and unless I'm bringing an Olympic gold medal, and sometimes not even then, unless I'm bringing an Olympic gold medal, there's no real upfront money, and there's going to be years of working my way through a sport that I may or may not ever get anywhere near the top of. And in boxing, 95% of all purse money is won by 5% of the boxers. So you have this sort of, you make almost nothing until you get to the very top, then you start to make a little bit, and then it's really all bet on a back end, you know, the payday at the end when, when you finally get to the title. And then, by the way, there's one more really different and difficult part about it, which is there's no season. So everything you do is held up as part of who you are forever. Like I've used that example before in boxing where let's say you're a pitcher in, in Major League Baseball. You could be 5-15 and 15 this season, 7-11 and 11 the next season, 3-9, and, and nine, and then you could have two in a row where, where you went, you're 17-5 and five and you're 20-6. and six. Well, now you're the, nobody says... Well, you know, we're not sure about him. They say he's the best pitcher in baseball. He just signed a massive contract. He's dominating it. Bernard Hopkins lost his first professional fight, and people were still bringing that up like four years into his career. Well, he does have that one blemish on his record, a four-round fight, you know, on an undercard, but that's considered like your permanent record. There's no season. It never gets wiped away. So I think all of those incentives say, unless you don't have many other alternatives, if you're naturally very athletic and you have the potential to play sport, this shouldn't be the first one you choose. And I think that's also why you see so many of the top, world's top fighters coming out of some of the most desperate places on the planet. Because you know it's a lot easier to imagine getting punched in the face when the alternative is you know the opportunities, let's say, in Ukraine or, or someplace. So, uh, and where there's not a lot of other professional organized sports Boxing does have a low barrier to entry, and it's not very expensive to get the sort of gear. It's not polo, you know, you know, uh, to get the gear and the access, you know, the places that that happen. So that's the part to me where I look at it. And then obviously you have MMA becoming more and more popular. Um, that's the part where I where I worry about boxing becoming more of a niche sport. That uh, not you won't have as many high level athletes going into it. The ones that will won't be in American marketplaces where the money and the television tends to be. And uh, the the dominance of it in other countries will render it, at least in America, to something closer to soccer. You remember Lawrence Taylor? Yes. Uh, I was at a boxing dinner about five years ago in New York. and I was talking with Bobby Chez. Mm -hmm. I remember Bobby Chez told me he met Lawrence Taylor at some kind of sports function they were together at. And... He said, Lawrence Taylor told Bobby, Bobby, I could never do what you did. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's, when you look at, I, I interviewed. Boxing, the, all these guys from the other sports, football, basketball, tennis, golf, they all are in awe of the great fighters. I, I interviewed. Even, uh, the, even the secondary great fighters like Bobby Chez. My, one of my first interviews was in sports was Jim Brown. And uh, we had, it was a, a, like a junket, sort of several reporters around. And, where, you know, they're asking. Where was it, it at? It was in uh, Sarasota. He was here for, he had a um, uh, 
it's called the ICANN Academy or something, he found a foundation that he did that would go into Title I schools and do after-school programs. So he was going to speak at the graduation for the ICANN. How many years ago? Uh, this would have been 2011. And, great, great guy, great guy. Great guy, yes. And nice. everybody's asking the same normal questions, and I knew a little bit, so I said, hey, uh, the rumor had it, I know that you went over to um, Zaire when uh, Ali fought Foreman, and I heard a rumor that they had offered you money to fight Foreman afterwards, assuming that Foreman won, and, uh, and it was a pretty big payday, and he said, you heard about that. So he was interested at that point. So he kind of like, you know, uh, turned toward me and we had, uh, you know, lengthy back and forth. But he said, yeah, I did go over and I thought for sure that I would take the money that they were offering uh, because he said it was, I forget what he, if he gave me an exact number or not, but he said it was more than I made in any like three years in the NFL. It was more than I was making for movies. And the thinking was Ali was going to get crucified and, now Foreman would need, who, who is Foreman going to go to for his next fight after he just obliterated uh, Frazier twice? And now... No, Norton. Frazier and Norton. Yeah. And now it's going to be all these going to be gone. Who's going to be left for him to have these right. fights yeah. against? So they, they thought, King was thinking, I've got to have somebody to manufacture into it. Oh, what a great story, Jim Brown. So Jim Brown said, it sounded like a great idea. And then the first time I walked into one of the training camps, it was when I was over there, it was, happened to be George's. And I saw him putting dents in that 100-pound heavy bag that he hit up close. And that changed my whole thinking on it. And I said to myself, no way, immediately. So to your point, even the great Jim Brown, all it took was seeing uh, George Foreman hit a heavy bag. Wow. And that was enough to make him rethink multi-million dollar walkaway money in a fight with him. Uh, Jim Brown was one of the most intimidating guys I've ever been around. I remember I was at a Wheaties press conference in New York City in early 2000, or maybe 90, late 90s, early 2000. He was there, Mary Lou Breton, Mark Spitz. And I went to do a biofile with him, you know, asking him my biofile questions, greatest moment, most painful moment, favorite movies, childhood heroes, favorite ice cream flavor, first job, funny memories, question, list of questions like that. And I was like, but... I went to him anyway, and, hey, Jim, could we do this interview? And he turned out to be the uh, nicest guy. He answered all the questions, favorite ice cream flavor, and he really enjoyed the interview. But that was the only time I ever went to a biofile where I was a little scared and, <laughs> and even intim intimidated that something could happen because his image was of such a kind of a mean, intimidating guy, you know, no-nonsense bullshit, but super nice guy and great guy. And uh, for a guy like that to be – Intimidated by George Foreman punching the bag, right? Speaks highly of how good those heavyweight champs are, for sure. All right, we're going to wrap it up there. I've been speaking with Scoop Malinowski. Uh, Scoop, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to put a link in um, description for the article. So if you want to go check out his many, many books on sports, mostly boxing and tennis, uh, I would highly recommend it. He's an extremely talented writer and storyteller, and uh, he's got. His place in history marked out. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. And I got to say, you did an awesome, awesome uh, job as an interviewer and a podcast. One of, the, one of the best I think I've ever been a part of. I appreciate that. I was feeling a little rusty after those weeks off, so I'm glad you thought so. All right, join us on Sunday for the Sunday edition. As always, thank you for listening to BradingtonTimes.com's podcast. And Sunday, we will be back with a full edition post-holidays. 
www.thebradentontimes.com fact-based news and analysis without an agenda.